Moy mentioned that Justin and Brandon are both in Brazil. Uh, we look forward to them returning Tuesday, I think. Uh, I'm sure the moms are looking forward to Tuesday as much as any of us. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we're taking a break this week. So we've been in a series on Ruth and Esther, and that'll pick up again next Sunday when Justin returns. Uh, so today, I'm excited uh, to look at this passage in John 15 with you. And we'll look at the the first 11 verses in that chapter where Christ addresses his his disciples. Uh, There's some heartfelt truth in it directly from Christ. It's his own words that we're going to study and absorb. Uh, So complication, I think, is we're all very familiar with it. If you've been in church any period of time, uh, this passage, I'm the vine, you're the branches, is familiar. And, And so it can go in one ear and out the other. And I think we're apt, if we're not careful, just to miss the weight of glory uh, that's in, that's in this passage. So the implication then is we need to absorb it slowly, much like a branch absorbs sap from a vine, it's slow. My, My position, after reading, after studying, there's a very strange kind of joy that we just heard read that Christ speaks about, and you, I think, we can call it weird when we get there, uh, but it's there nonetheless. But most of us don't, don't experience it. We just don't experience the reality of this kind of strange joy that Christ talks about. And I'm, I'm speculating, but I think fundamentally it's because we're a little too preoccupied with ourselves. So if you'll sit with me at the feet of Jesus, let's listen to these words, listen to his teaching, You might need more time this afternoon or this week. Go back, read the passage again. It's worth it. But Lord willing, the benefit to you, the benefit to me, is the Holy Spirit will help us to die to ourselves, to find uh, the life and the joy that that Christ speaks about here. So I'm going to pray briefly, and we'll jump in. So if you'll join me. Uh, Lord, we just come to you uh, confident of your goodness and your truth. aware of our need. Lord, for you to uh, illumine your words and your truth in our hearts and our minds. Holy Spirit, if we don't have your help, it's all in vain. Uh, so we, we ask for that help. Lord, for our good, certainly, but ultimately for your glory, for your purposes. So we ask it in Jesus' name. Alrighty, so we're going to look at joy. I think there are three parts. That's the way that I would break up these 11 verses. We're going to look at the source of joy. We'll look at the effects of joy, what it does to us. And then we'll look at the strangeness that I talked about, why I think it is strange, why it's distinct. So we're going to look at the source, the effects, and the strangeness of this joy that Christ gives us. One word of context as we start reading, uh, Jesus has just completed the Last Supper with his disciples. They've been in the upper room. They've had that, uh, that discussion. They've had that dinner. And he said, "Please or, rise and let us go from here. So they've walked out. So presumably outdoors somewhere. It's after dinner. So uh, it's in the evening. And the Last Supper, it's the Last Supper. So crucifixion's coming, right? It's, it's hours away at this point. And so that's the... That's the setting, and you know, I'm speculating here, who knows, maybe Christ was standing by a vine that he chose to use for this illustration to talk about um, the union that disciples have with Christ. Uh, you know, I don't know, but it's, it's evening, it's weighty because of what's coming, and that just sets the table, that's the context, and, and he is choosing to talk ultimately about joy 
in this moment? There might be a lot of things that come to mind if I know that death is coming that you might choose to talk about, but this is what he chose to talk about. So let's read the first three verses. Christ says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So he sets up this, uh, this metaphor, this allegory, and he'll explain it. Uh, but the father we know is the one who cultivates the vine. He's the one cultivating and caring for his son, who Jesus says, I'm the vine. And so he's, he's the source, right? He's the life that comes through the vine. That's what ultimately gives rise to the fruit that he's going to talk about. I think it's fair to say right off the, the bat, the vine dressers don't get into that work for the sake or the, the purpose, I should say, of a single branch that sprouts off somewhere. But the vine dresser goes to work for a healthy, flourishing, mature vine. That's the purpose. Do you agree with that? And for the vine dresser to get there, there are, there's work to be done. And so he says he snaps off dead wood, takes it away. For the branches that are alive, right, that are connected to the vine, there are things like pruning and cutting and snapping and bending, uh, twisting against its own will to put it in its proper form. All of those things are necessary for this flourishing, healthy vine that is the ultimate goal. Right, so the things that are good for the branches to produce the fruit are good. There's clearly nothing wrong. There's, there's everything good about it, uh, but that is not the end goal. That is not the ultimate. The ultimate's the healthy vine. And if you walk by, you know, again, a little bit of speculation here, but if you walk by and you see this healthy, beautiful, mature vine on a trellis doing what it should, then you would stop and think, hmm, well, that might have just happened by itself and sprung up out of the ground perfectly, or there might be a vine dresser. So, two things, right? We, we're going to read here. Christ will explain the allegory. I'm the vine. You're the branches. We know that we're, we believers, those who put their faith in Christ, the, we're the branches. But because it's one vine, many branches, I think there are some very clear applications to draw out of that, and I'm, I'm just going to pick two. Uh, but I, I've said already it's, it's not ultimately about a branch, which means it's not ultimately about you. It's not ultimately about me. It's about the vine dresser being glorified, being disclosed, being made known to everybody that kind of comes in contact with the vine. That means you and I will go through snipping, bending, cutting, snapping. It doesn't say the vine dresser may bend and snap and cut and prune. It says he does. It's not a possibility, it's a promise. It's going to happen. In the bending and the snapping and the cutting, the tying, the pruning, pruning also means cleansing, the word can go either way. Uh, it may not even be specifically for your benefit, it may be for the benefit of another branch, and it's ultimately for the good and the flourishing of the vine. 
So as we begin to think a little bit about being corrected, being exhorted, being taught in this connection, right, this corporate reality of the church, and it gets uncomfortable, or somebody says something to me that rubs, that offends, possible that the Lord is doing that on purpose for somebody else's good, and that's what it means to be part of the vine. And so you, we, we just right out of the gate begin to sense and understand our role, and it's very cool if I give a little preview of where we're going, but it's not ultimate, right? And so that's the context in which we accept the pruning. Second, uh, your place as a vine, I'm sorry, as a branch in the vine and mine, right? Those of us that belong to Christ, it's connected to the vine, obviously, and it's connected with one another in that relationship. Right? Because there are branches, plural, we all come, we're all part of that reality. You know, elsewhere, the image is a body, right? We're hands and feet, eyes, whatever. Some of us are warts. There are other things that make up the fullness of the vine. And so, um, if you'll let me press the metaphor here a little bit of the vine and the garden. COVID is another pest in the garden. And yet God's word, Christ himself says, abide in me. The, the teaching wasn't, well, except when the pests come, then it's okay to go ahead and detach from the vine, go indoors, put yourself in a vase where it's clean, where it's safe. And there have been plenty of illnesses, plenty of pests, plenty of things that would challenge the church all throughout the history of, of, of our faith and that Christ instituted the church. How many exceptions do you see listed here for remaining connected? Right, so if, if that has been you, if you've used COVID as a crutch to disconnect, you're in disobedience. Time to come back. The writer of Hebrews picked up on the same theme, uh, not of COVID, right? You wonder what was going on. But he said to the church, he said, let us not forsake the assembly as some are in the habit of doing which is interesting that it became a habit, right? He's not addressing the one-off, he's addressing the habit. You know, let us not do that, but we have to encourage one another all the more as we see the day a-coming. There was no internet, there was no social media. I don't think the encouragement was virtual, right? And when he says let one another, you, you, you need at least two, maybe three. You need community for the one another and the encouragement to take place, right? Right? So... If you've been on the fence, if you've been disconnected, if it's a crutch, repent. Right? You're part of a corporate reality. You need to be pruned. You need to be served. You need to be loved. You need to give those things to the rest of us. We need to give it to you. We need to abide in the vine. Right? That's our role. That's what we're made for here. So it's probably obvious here, Christ ultimately is the source of this joy that we're going to continue looking at. Uh, but what we, what we see just in the pruning imagery is that joy is not the absence of pain. Matter of fact, joy may come through pain. 
And he never sugarcoated that reality at all. So he says here in verse 3, when he's talking to his disciples, already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. I said that uh, cleansing and purging, very much the same word that gets translated prune, very much the same thing. So Christ revealed himself. Presumably there was a point where the 11 came to faith and trusted. And think about some of the conversations that took place over the three years that they spent with him. Things like, get behind me, Satan. Things like, do, do you still doubt? Why do you not believe? You see the pruning and the tweaking and the rubbing and the bending in the conversation. So Christ has been, he did cleanse and he is cleansing those 12. His word has that effect on us as well. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's not just a chance. It's not just the possibility that it might happen. That's the intent. That is why the father cares and cultivates the branches the way that he does. Because the healthy flourishing branches make the vine look good. And everybody steps back and says, wow, what a vine dresser. See the relationships? Yeah. So here's the silver lining. If anything that I've read or said offends, then you're on the right track. Right? That's what it feels like. All right, so Christ is the source of the joy in those first three verses. Let's look at the effects. What does it look like when it takes root in us and it begins to manifest and we, pe- we begin to see Christ in action through us? Look at verses four and five. Christ says, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Here's the memory verse. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So there's a little bit of a mystery here in verse 3. He said, you're already clean because of the word that I spoke to you. Christ took the initiative to redeem and to make the 11 his own. Same thing for you and me. Christ took the initiative and engrafted us as it were. Right? He brought us in. Yet, he says to us, it's your responsibility to abide. Right? So there's this interesting tension, and that's, that's, that paradox is all throughout Scripture, where we are called to remain, that's the other translation here, to abide, to pursue Christ with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul. It says you need to abide. Again, the, the, the image, the metaphor he's using is so perfect, how many branches do you know that come and go from the vine? It doesn't work. Right? The branch is permanently connected for all of its life, utterly dependent on the vine. There's no coming and going. There's no waxing and waning. So I, I think you know, when we're done here, we'll be out there. Many of you have young kids. And you guys have seen this on Sunday mornings. Sometimes the smaller kids will crash into each other, hit the door. There's tears and whining and whatever. And so we're having a conversation. The kid will come running up to the parent. And the parent... Being a good dad, good mom, picks the kid up, and the kid quiets down and is just sort of like. And if you try and say hi to that child, they may look at you. (laughs) You want to come to me? I think that's a picture. That's what abiding looks like. There's no confusion. There's no uncertainty about where joy, about where life comes from. 
right? Most of us are a little bit too big to go out and do that, to jump in the arms of our parents. I can't imagine what my dad would say to me if I tried. <laughs> so what does it look like, right? For those of us that are a little bit bigger, a little bit older, what are the marks of abiding? Paul gives us a couple images. I'm sure there are more, but there are two here. Uh, the first one, Paul taught the, the church in Rome a lot. It's a wonderful letter. Chapter 12, he says, in view of God's mercy, right, he's explaining who Christ is and what redemption looks like. And here you are, church, redeemed as a result of who he is. So in view of God's mercy, present yourself as a living sacrifice is the term that he uses. So in the context of temple worship, if you have a goat, if you have a lamb, there's death involved. And the sacrifice is presented, and now it's on the altar, resting. Sort of like the vine, does it walk away from the branch? No. Does the goat jump down off the altar and pursue its own, you know, go graze? Can't. He's been sacrificed. It's permanent. Paul says you're a living sacrifice. There's a new life within you. You are permanently offered to God. That's abiding. It's permanent, right? It's ongoing. So what does that look like? Paul also teaches elsewhere, pray without ceasing. I don't think the, the instruction there is to go in your closet, go in your room, withdraw from society and pray 24-7. It's, hey, I'm fixing to go have a nasty, ugly conversation with somebody. It's going to be tense, perhaps. Christ, I don't know what this is going to look like ultimately, but my goal in this conversation is to honor you. Would you help me? And you have the conversation. Right, so your, your mind is with your life source as you enter in. Or you know something else like, I'm going to share Christ, a conversation with a friend or a family member, something that's been moving in that direction over time. So Lord, help me to remember your love and your truth. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then Christ says, but I am the way, the truth, the life. So I've spent time abiding in him. Lord, help me remember love and truth and, and the, the totality of your gospel. Just help me with this conversation, Lord, however imperfect I might make it. Quick prayer. Pray without ceasing. Enter into the conversation. Abide in Christ. Be his representative. That's what abiding looks like. Christ knows, though, the reality. We're prone to wander. How many of us wandered? Most of us? All of us? Sure. Right. He knows that we wander. We're quick to start looking for some sort of satisfaction, some sort of peace, some sort of resource or withdrawal where I can sort of rest and get my bearings, do whatever it is. We, we go seek that in a thousand other places. I actually talked about this a little bit morning in, in Bible study. Um, do, do you know what yours is? I won't, I won't ask for volunteers, but do you know where you go? It can be the polite things. You know, I get caught up in work and I want to be self-sufficient, and that's true. I do try and find satisfaction in there personally. There are the unmentionables, right? There are the addictions. There's the pornography. There's the gossiping. There are the things we do that sort of feel good, the quick pleasures, the flash in the pan that sort of, yeah. Where do you go when you try to find life elsewhere? Christ says, abide in me. 
in that message, implicit is don't go there. Don't do that. Abide in me. Uh, it's, it's misguided. I'm going to use another stark image because that's sort of the tone of this passage. But I, I think it's, you know, if a branch were to get, grab a saw and try and cut itself off of the vine, it's suicidal, it's depraved, it's futile. When I was doing a little bit of research, I came across an article on cutting. Have you guys heard of this? That sometimes in youth and elsewhere, folks will do that. It's depraved, it's futile, it's misguided, but somebody's seeking some sort of release in that. You know, I'm not a psychologist, but that's sort of what you glean when you read it. Um, entirely counterproductive and harmful. And yet, that's where our fleshly, natural tendencies take us, is looking for life somewhere else, detaching ourselves, cutting ourselves, as it were, if that were possible, away from the vine. But we have very deep longings for things. And Christ says, this is the only place you're going to be fulfilled, in me. So I don't think that image is any um, worse, if it were, any more stark, any more powerful than some of the language that, let's go back to look now in verses 5 and 6. I read 5, that's the abiding. But here's what he says in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, and here this is important to understand. So he's been addressing the disciples, he's been talking to you. Now, in verse 6, he says, if anyone, so he's broadening this, if anyone, anyone doesn't abide in me, well, then he's like a branch that gets snapped off and it withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire, and they're burned. We, we like the memory verse in chapter, or verse 5. That one... Not so much, right? That's not an Awana verse the last time I checked. But boy, it's true. When you try to find life outside of Christ, the picture of first withering, I was raking leaves and branches about a week ago in my backyard. Some had come down after the storm. The leaves are still green immediately after they've disconnected. You come back a week later and it's dry and it's brittle and the color's gone. And I use them for firewood. We've got a fire pit. That's all they're good for at that point. So Christ says, if anyone lives apart from me, what remains for them is to wither for, say, 70 or 80 years, then die, and be thrown into the fire. No sugarcoating. That's the reality of a life detached and apart from Christ. That's, I mean, that's, oof. what do we do with that? Right? We, we need to abide in him. Right? So if you're on the fence, if you're one of these folks like me who's prone to wander, it matters what you do with your time and if you carve out hours of your day to abide. It's not necessarily like, you know, I, I didn't make it to the gym today and I feel kind of bad about it. It's more essential than that. Right? It's your very life. So there's just two categories that he gives us here, right? Those who are connected and vibrant and growing, and those who are not, and who are dead and gone and burning. That fact alone, the fact that he gives us two categories, is a message in and of itself. Christ said in Revelation, I wish that you were hot, or I wish that you were cold, but as it, are, as it is, you're lukewarm, and I, I just want to vomit, I want to spit. 
There's just two places to be here, Christ says to his disciples. And so as we grow, as his life moves into us, the things that I care about, my affections, my priorities, my time, my money, they begin to take orbit all around him because I'm connected to him, right? Just like the branch connected to the vine. And the life and the sap of the vine moves into the branch and there's a resemblance that gets more obvious. Fruit results. Love, good deeds, conversations, things that the vine dresser intended for us as branches. And Lord willing, the more that that takes place, it becomes obvious people see it and say, hey, this guy talks a lot about Jesus and kind of sensing a pattern. He might be a Christian. And so when, when Christ says in, what verses is eight, I think, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The vine dresser gets much glory with the fruit just hanging heavily off the branches, right? Where you're a grape that's been squished and poured out for somebody else's benefit, somebody else's nourishment. And when you do that, you begin to reveal what it is that you care about. Right? And the identity of Christ flows through you. And I think reveal is a good word. Christ says, prove, prove to be my disciples. It's, it's revelation in that sense. Right? Your identity in Christ emerges. That's the proof that people see that, that guy's a disciple of Christ. I don't really need to ask what she believes or what she cares about. I don't need to ask what kind of tree it is with a grape or an apple or a pear. You can, you can tell. So where are you? What do you look like? People look at your life. What are they going to discern? Is God getting glorified I've said before, and it's true here too, the word glory and glorified, same form of the word, the Greek word is doxa. The obvious part, the one that we're familiar with, uh, God gets glory. Everyone looks, their attention is drawn to God's splendor and his majesty, and he gets glory and everybody acknowledges it. That, that's God being glorified. There's another part of the definition of glory where it's a two-way street where my opinion of God's glory, your opinion of God's glory deepens and solidifies, and my opinion of him is shaped and formed. He really is glorious. He really is merciful. And, and that you know, conviction that God grows up in us, that assurance of his character, you know, moving through, changing the way that we interact with people, that glorifies God. Our convictions, our opinions, solidifying in who he is, being evident to people around us, God gets glory out of that. That's the effect. That's the outcome. That's the fruit of the joy that we're going to get to. God being glorified, people seeing it. It's a very cool outcome, a very good picture. All right, so... Let's talk about strangeness in verses 9 through 11. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments 
and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I'll explain why I think it's strange. And if I'm speculating a little bit, some of you may say, we, you know, Adam, we, we get it. The whole thing is strange. No need to explain anymore. We're, we're there. This is sort of weird and awkward. And that may be true, but let me tell you why. Right? Here's the why. Christ introduces, the, this is the first time he's talked about love in this passage and, and about joy explicitly. Let's talk about love and then we'll move to joy. Christ explains that his love for us is like the Father's love for him. That, that whatever the characteristic of the Father's love is for the Son, that's the way that Christ loves us, his disciples. That's what he says. So the vine dressers care for the vine, again, pruning, snapping, tying, bending, breaking, culling out dead wood, all of those things that can be painful occurs in a context of love. And that's what the Father is doing for the Son and did through the Son in the context of love. That's the path to flourishing for the vine, for the vine himself. So I'm talking about crucifixion, ultimately. Jesus came into Jerusalem. It's called the triumphant entry. You guys remember this about a week, give or take, before the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's why he came to Jerusalem. He came to die. He knew it was coming. And in John 12, just a couple of chapters beforehand, he's talking and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you that unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. It's just a grain. But what happens when it dies? If it dies, it bears much fruit. Talking about himself. Right? That was his conviction. That was, his, that was the truth that he came, wanted people to understand. That's why I'm going to die. My fruit, my life, made available to you through death. That's heavy. Right? To try and put ourselves in that place probably couldn't do it, but he did. And he knows that his father loves him, right? That's been the characteristic of their relationship from eternity past, perfect love. Christ also said, John 14, I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father, right? This act of obedience and crucifixion is a witness for Christ's love for his own Father. As good as it is for you and me, as necessary as his crucifixion and resurrection are for you and me, that's not the totality of its purpose. Right? It's also a witness. So yeah, the effect of the crucifixion is wonderful and glorious. Right? The reason, the motive for it is love, which is just strange. Strange. We know that the, the relationship, the love relationship between the Father and the Son went well. Uh, different points in Scripture, one in particular, uh, God says, this is my Son, whom I love, whom I'm well pleased. There, there's something limited in the parent relationship, parent-child, father-son, but it, it gets at the relationship between the Father and the Son. It's one of the strongest relationships that we can use to kind of get at what it means, you know, how Jesus and the Father relate to one another. 
So just you know, speculate a little bit, son, I love you. You know I love you. I need you to take on flesh. We sing about that. We sing about the incarnation that Moy mentioned. I need you to go and sacrifice yourself for my creation. Take on their sins because I love you. That's strange. So that's the love relationship between father and son. So Jesus is not just bandying about words. You know, hey, I love you. He says, the way that the father loves me, I love you. Very next verse, 1432, Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it. So if you attach yourself to the things of this world, the natural life, it's the withering, it's the burning, it's the dying, you'll lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world, by comparison to Christ and your attachment to him, hate is what it looks like, right? The attachment you have to everything else. Whoever hates this life in this world, well, he's going to keep his life, and it's going to be eternal life. So just like, literally, Christ's death is the path of life, that same dynamic is at play in us dying to self. If a man would come after me, he's got to deny himself and take up his cross, follow me, we have to die to ourselves. And it may not be only merely symbolic. All 11 of the disciples were martyred. For their faith. One was exiled. He may have died just through exile. How, how likely is it that a group of 11 men who did not believe in the truth, that did not believe a resurrection actually occurred, would commit themselves to martyrdom to perpetuate a lie? Doesn't make any sense at all. They did it because they were persuaded and convinced of the truth and the goodness and the primacy of Christ. Right? Their sacrifice through martyrdom is strong, strong evidence for those of us 2,000 years later about the truth and the reality of Christ. Right? Just one example of life and truth and joy emerging through death. Heavy stuff. But again, remember the context. Where is Christ? when he's, he's, he, This is not just you know, a birthday party with gummy bears and lollipops and rainbows, right? This is what's on his heart that he's sharing with them just a few hours before his death. And this, this strangeness of it is that these things, the, the cutting, the bending, the snapping, the dying, those are the very means by which joy is imparted. It's the instrument of joy coming to us. That's what he said in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you why? Why did he speak them to him? That my joy may be in you. Strange. Strange. That your joy may be full. Um, just to put a fine point on it, Judas was dismissed from the final supper, the last supper. Christ said, whatever you're going to do, go do it quickly. So the act of betrayal is in motion as he speaks. 
Judas is out there talking. It's possible the religious leaders have paid him off the 30 silver. They may be walking. They're coming. He knows that they're going to show up. He's going to be bound. The scourging is all coming. Death is hours away. That's why he came to Jerusalem. And he says, listen. I'm telling you this so that my joy will be in you. We get a little bit of help trying to understand you know, what, what kind of joy accounts for all of this. A little bit of help in Hebrews. Uh, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12 that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So if you go back to my conversation, my, my hypothetical, right, as we speculate, the conversation between the Father and the Son, I, I need you to take on flesh, to enter through or enter into humanity, to be their substitute, to be their priest, to be raised victorious in resurrection, to redeem them. I need you to do that, son, because I love you. And on the other side of it, the father has reserved a particular kind of joy for the son. That's what he says, for the joy set before him. That's the carrot, as it were, that Christ entered into death. Right? And more than physical death, Christ is separating in some sense from the Father where he's had perfect union for all eternity. And again, he knows it. He knows it's coming. And he said, Lord, can you take this away from me? But in the end, your will be done, not mine. Right? He loves his Father. That's his motivation and his reward. There's a particular kind, there's a special kind of joy that the Father set aside for him. So if you hold that thought in your head, chapter 1 of Hebrews Verse 9, the author says, Therefore God has set you, this is the Son, you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. This is a reference in the Old Testament to a tradition where uh, there's some sort of celebration, maybe a victory celebration. Everybody's happy. Everybody's joyful. There's a lot of companions about who are experiencing this joy together. But the victor, the king, the one who's in charge, we mark him with oil and his joy is elevated above everybody else. His joy is greater than all of his companions. That's the joy that the father set aside for the son. He said, I need you to go through crucifixion and resurrection. Here's a singular joy, son. And so then you come back to Christ in this moment. He's about to go there and he says, I'm going to put my joy in you. It's not like I'm going to help you be more joyful and practice at it and, you know, kind of get up to whatever your reservoir is, get to the fullness of joy. I'm going to enlarge your capacity for joy so that you can have my joy. How many of us live in that reality? Man, it's, it's in the context of the most profound love, right, that we get redemption out of. And he took the time, right, at this moment to say, you're going to have my joy, right? That's the nature of the union. That's the strangeness of the joy. 
that's yours and mine by faith in Christ. So the, the stakes are high. That's the kind of joy you have on the one hand. That's alternative A. If you don't unite yourself to Christ in faith, then you wither and die in your firewood. That's alternative B. The starkness of those terms, the harshness of those words, very, very fitting for the context. Christ is not messing around. This is the apex. It's time to get serious. Right? So I think there, there, there are two camps of us. There are those of us that are believers in Christ. We need some pruning. We need some correction. If you feel it right now, don't ignore it. Don't walk out and just sort of, time for chips and salsa, you know. Like, don't do that. <laughs> I don't want to do that either. Don't do that. Right? I'll ask the elders to go to the back. We, we take a few minutes to respond in obedience and faith to Christ. You have every incentive, right, from the goodness and the graciousness of your king to come to him and to prune, to weed the garden, to get rid of whatever sin is hampering your connection to him. If you're not a believer, probably obvious right now, you should be. Right? The fact that Christ was crucified and rose again, and there are all the martyrs that I talked about, this is real, I am persuaded. Most of us are. And if, if you feel that conviction, right? if you're curious in some way, that's why we're here. Again, connect with an elder, connect with somebody else you know is a believer. Don't dismiss this, right? It's not just another sermon, right? Not because it's me, but it's, it's Christ. So when Moy plays, don't sit there, right? If the spirit is moving, you should obey. So should I, right? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your goodness, your kindness, your wisdom, they're, they're overwhelming. Lord, your joy is overwhelming. We just come, having heard your word, aware of our need. And so, Lord, would you, in your mercy, love us, help us, reform us, move us to repentance and faith and obedience, produce the fruit that should characterize our lives, produce the joy in us that ought to characterize our lives. And Lord, through that work, may you flourish. May the Father be glorified. That's our heart's, pri heart's cry. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.